Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. It is is great to see all you guys. I'm very thankful for you all being here. And thank you all um, for uh, being understanding in... um, our desire to uh, submit to the governing authorities over us and wear masks and be socially distanced and as well as we, we can. Um, to be honest, I am not the biggest fan. I'll just be straightforward. I'm not the biggest fan of masks. Uh, the inconvenience that they are. Um, and... Uh, a lot of different reasons, like, but I'm, it really doesn't matter. Um, there is concern, I think, on all sides of what's going on. And my biggest concern is not allowing something that should turn us to Christ, like the current situation that we're in, a situation that should turn us and point us to Jesus, point us to God in reliance on him. Uh, and allow that instead to cause us to turn on one another. Uh, That is what Satan wants to do, is take something that should cause us to turn towards Jesus and to turn towards one another in um, frustration and anger and conflict. In fact, I think it's a great opportunity. As with most great opportunities, there's some uncomfort, but it's a great opportunity to learn, to submit to the authorities that are over us. Uh, kids, I know sometimes you don't like to submit to your parents, right? It's not convenient. It doesn't match what you would like to be doing in the moment. And yet God calls us to do that. And he says, honoring your parents in that way uh, is a blessing to your life. And I think submitting to the authorities that are over us in so much as they're not uh, going against God's word is an opportunity for us to learn how to submit even to the ultimate authority over us, which is God himself. If I can't submit in a matter like a mask, which has no bearing on sin or not sin in the Bible, then how am I going to submit to God's authority when he asks me to do something that is actually very hard for me in that moment? And so I think uh, for me, that has been part of the lesson is Uh, taking control of the temptation that I have to be rebellious at my core and to submit instead um, to those things. And I pray that that you would do so as well and that it might make you more like Christ um, as we journey through this this season. So let me pray and um, we'll jump into the the message this morning. God, uh, I pray for unity in your church. 
not just here at Proclaim, yes, here at Proclaim, but not just here at Proclaim, but across many local churches that exist. And Lord, I pray that we might keep our focus on you. I pray that you might uh, soften our hearts for one another, soften our hearts for those who see uh, issues differently than we do, who have preferences that are different than our preferences. Um, help us to be understanding, to bear with one another, as your word says, to be patient with one another, to really take the time to look at things from another's perspective and to be respectful and to be loving and to uh, consider others as much as we would consider ourselves as you did and as Paul writes in Philippians 2. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bring resolution to the sickness that is uh, surrounding the globe, that you would give wisdom to people who are figuring out solutions. Lord, I pray in the midst of that, that we would not uh, miss opportunities to be encouraged and to be with those who also love you to speak truth into one another's lives and to support one another. We thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, as a, a young Christian, I remember uh, being quite concerned, particularly with uh, Jesus's return. I don't know if that was true for you at some point in your Christian walk. Uh, God saved me in 1995. He uh, kind of broke down the door to my room, if you will, and came into my life and uh, said, hey, uh, I like, you need to follow me. That's what you need to do. And, um, and so I began to, to try to do that poorly, of course, as most of us. But the late 90s was a weird time to be following Jesus in, in relation to Christ's return, right? Because you had a number of things that happened, uh, particularly in that season. First off, um, the whole Left Behind series of books came, started being published in 1995, which was its own kind of thing that happened and, and really brought a lot of attention to that, not... not Probably not all of it bad, but not all of it good either. There was a sudden increase uh, in movies in just the, our culture where the world ended, you know, from Independence Day to Armageddon, you know. Uh, the world is going to come to an end. I mean, you know, Aerosmith saying, I don't want to close my eyes, I don't want to fall asleep. Well, I wanted to close my eyes and fall asleep in that movie, but that's just my opinion. Um, all of those predictions, uh, all this, these predictions started coming out as we kind of came to the close of a millennia, right, about the world coming to an end. And then you had Y2K, if, for those of you who are old enough to remember uh, Y2K being a thing, and everyone thought that the world was going to, you know, shut down because four digits was too much work, and so people went with two digits instead, you know, and not having the foresight that that, that those other two digits might matter in just a matter of like 15 years, um, whatever. Uh, these are the people that are engineering computers and they can't even figure to date math. Um, at any rate, they fixed it and nothing happened. But as a teenager and as a young believer, I remember praying things like, God, please don't come back until I can get married, you know? Uh, please, uh, I, I want to go and, and experience this, or I want to experience that. Uh, uh, you know, I want you to come back, but, but like there's a really cool movie coming out that I'd like to see first, so if you could just hold off, you know, at least six months, then I could catch that, that movie. It was as if Christ's return was this thing to like be, be dreaded above all other things, but the overwhelming truth when we look at New, the New Testament uh, the overwhelming truth throughout First and Second Thessalonians is that Christ's return is actually the single most anticipated event for the church. In, in, in fact, it's that all the church's hope is wrapped up in the truth that King Jesus is going to return and set all things right. It should be encouraging to us, not discouraging 
Church, do you, do you get this? As Christians, if we're having a conversation around Christ's return and that conversation is not encouraging to us as Christians, then we are talking about Christ's return in the wrong way. Everything we do ought to be in light of that future reality that Christ will do this thing. And that's evident in these letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, if you remember, last summer we preached through 1st Thessalonians, uh, and I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to go back and preach through 2nd Thessalonians this summer, but, but today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to actually recap 1st Thessalonians for those of you who weren't here, for those of you who don't remember. And so, you know, if typically our sermons are maybe a walk uh, through, you know, a, a scenic little hike through Scripture or maybe a, a scenic drive through Scripture, if you will. This is going to be like a plane ride over the mountains, all right? We're just going to kind of look down from this view thousands of feet above, and we're going to look at the highlights of what First Thessalonians is about as we summarize it and lead into Second Thessalonians next week. So as Coleman said, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to page, uh, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians. If you have one of them from the table, it's on page 573. Um, but we're going to jump around quite a bit. And so I'm going to say, hey, uh, in chapter blah, 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 verse whatever, um, you, this is where this is. And so if you don't know, the, the big numbers in your Bible, that's the chapter numbers, and the little bitty numbers, those are your verse numbers. And so if you want to navigate through with me, that's how you can do that. But first, I want to give a little bit of background to what's going on. And we find that background in Acts 16 and 17. Paul has setting off on his second missionary journey. And along the way, he gets this vision from a man in Macedonia. And he wants to continue his journey into Asia, but this vision tells him to come over to Europe, and so he heads over to Europe instead, and as he heads over there, he visits a major capital city, Thessalonica. And he's only there for three or four weeks, um, maybe a few months at the most, but he experiences some just terrible persecution, and Paul experiences persecution in a lot of cities, but this city is so bad that within just a few weeks, he has to actually escape the city just to survive. In the midst of all of that, though, the gospel takes root in a way that's more successful than any of the other cities he's been to up until that point. And so he escapes and he continues on his journey, uh, sharing the gospel in different cities, but he's concerned for this young church that he didn't really get to spend very much time with. He didn't get to spend very much time sharing more and more about God's word and about the gospel. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to, to find out what's happening, to find out if the gospel truly did take root, if, if, these, if this church is really surviving. And what he finds out is, is the report is great. Despite the affliction that the church is facing for their faith and how um, their lives are now moving in a completely different direction than the current of the culture they live in, they continue to love one another really well. In fact, their love for one another, he says, is an example to other churches. In the face of taking uh, hate from those outside of the church, they are taking that hate and turning it into immense amounts of love for one another. In fact, their hope is, is in the return of their king, Jesus. And that purpose is going to spill over into the second letter to the Thessalonians as well as Paul spins the second letter clarifying more of what he said in first. Thessalonians. And so, with that in mind, here's my uh, sermon in a sentence for today. And really, it's the, maybe the sermon in a sentence for all of First and Second Thess Thessalonians. And, and it is this, that the destination shapes the journey. Friends, the destination shapes the journey. When you know where you're going, when you know what the end is, that ought to shape how you travel through life to get there. Whatever you think is at the end, it changes not only the way you go, but your attitude as you go. With that in mind. And since we are still a fairly young church, 
I'd like to frame this particular sermon like this. I want to give you, from 1 Thessalonians, Paul's top tips, if you will, for keeping a long view in a new church. Paul's top tips for keeping a long view in a new church. And tip number one, we find in the first chapter of Thessalonians that that Coleman just read for us, And, and it is this, we need to thank God for gospel fruit. We need to thank God whenever we see gospel fruit in the church. That should give us a heart of gratitude. Verse 2 says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Before we get into why why Paul is thanking God, I want to make sure that you don't get the wrong uh, impression. I want to make sure you don't get the impression that this church just happens to be a perfect church because it's not. In fact, he's going to spend the next few chapters talking about wrong beliefs that they have, talking about ways they need to be acting different. This is not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. They are flawed. But Paul still has gratitude for the gospel wins that he sees in their life. He has gratitude because they get the gospel. Friends, we can thank God for gospel fruit, even in a flawed church. And let me be, you know, transparent if you didn't realize, Proclaim is a flawed church because it's filled with flawed people and has a flawed pastor. But we can still be thankful and ought to be thankful for the gospel fruit that we see. So what in particular is Paul Paul thankful for? Three virtues we see in uh, the third verse of chapter one. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. And we're going to see those uh, overarched through the book. They have a genuine faith that has resulted in changed lives. They have deep love for one another despite receiving persecution. And they've, uh, they're driven by their hope in Jesus. And so when the gospel takes root, What we need to understand is when it takes root, it will bear fruit regardless of the circumstances because God is doing that work and circumstances don't stop God. And so even in today's uh, present moment with, with, uh, you know, stay at home orders and with masks and with all sorts of stuff going on, when the gospel takes root, you can't stop God. God's going to do his work. He's going to grow his church, and his church can and will grow even in the midst of our present moment. And we ought to thank God for that. Man, that should give us a heart of of gratitude. And how do we know when that fruit has happened? Well, verse 9 of chapter 1, if you look there, this is a key verse in this book. It says this. He says, that the the Thessalonians um, turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned from the idols that they served and they served God and said, well, idols, what do you mean? Like little statues or or something? Well, idols are more than that. And we, we know this from Ezekiel where it talks about the idols of our heart. And I think there's two definitions that I really like for what idols are that I think help us to frame this. And, and so if, you don't, if you're not sure uh, what's an idol, here's a couple of definitions that, that might help you. An idol is anything you will sin for or sin if you don't get. An idol is anything you will sin to get or sin if you don't get. That's, a, that's an idol. Another definition might be this, turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. So idols can be sneaky because a lot of times they're actually good things when they're rightly prioritized, but when we make them into something bigger than they ought to be, they become bad things. So let me pause for a second. I want you to ask yourself, is there anything that I would sin to get? Is there anything that I would violate God's word, that I would not be obedient to God for just to get that thing? If I could just have that thing, even for a moment. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just one little sin. It's it's just a few moments like, and I get this, and then I'm totally serving you again, God. That's an idol. Is there anything 
that if you didn't get it or if it was taken away from you, your reaction would be to sin. That's revealing of an idol. See, the long view says, I don't have to sin in order to get that. God has already given me more than enough in Jesus. And if it's something that I truly need, he will provide that for me at the moment when I need that. And so I don't need to be disobedient to God. I don't need to reject God in order to get that because because Christ is what I need. And if anything else, he'll give me when I need it. That's the first tip. Take time to be grateful for gospel fruit. The second tip is this. Recognize true gospel ministry. And we're going to see four signs through chapters two and three of true gospel ministry. First is this. True gospel ministry is self-sacrificing. It's self-sacrificing. Look at chapter two, verse two. But though We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. They came having been persecuted, and they came into the city knowing that they were going to be persecuted, and they continued to preach the gospel despite being persecuted because they cared about those people. They were willing to sacrifice themselves to Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5, they didn't go around speaking flattery to to people in order to get kudos from them, in order to get the praise of man. They didn't look for ways to to get a bunch of money out of them. In fact, in verse 9, it says that they foresaw that there might be some that might think that they were there for selfish gain. And so they even went to the extent of doing work and not, not accepting any money from anyone just so that wouldn't be an excuse or a hindrance to the gospel amongst the people there in Thessalonica. It's self-sacrificing. True gospel ministry is self-sacrificing. Second, at its core, true gospel ministry is preaching the gospel. Three times in this section, Paul says, declare the gospel of God, proclaim the gospel of God, share the gospel of God. And then in verse 13, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as the, what it really is the word of God. True gospel ministry is concerned with the word of God being proclaimed and with the gospel being proclaimed to people and people hearing it. See, my opinion or the opinions of any other preacher or author or whatever uh, may produce some kind of result in people. But it'll only produce real gospel results in as much as it is in alignment with God's word. Don't don't care what Cody thinks, care what God thinks. And if the words that come out of my mouth don't align with God's word, then you ought to disregard them. Third, it is highly relational. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. This is one of my favorite verses, probably one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because we had become very, because you had become very dear to us. You see, gospel ministry includes not only a desire for people to know the gospel, but to really know the people and them to know you even if our lives are really messy. Those of you who know me well, who've been able to be at my house, who's been in my life, you know that like my life is messy at times. And I've gotten to know that your life is messy at times, right? We've had some fun and some messes. They are. We can act like they're not. We can put on a a show or a front like, no, I'm all good, but come, come on, guys. We've all lived on this earth long enough to know that, like, my life's a mess, your life's a mess in places. Uh, and I love this passage because, because it says Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, they loved the Thessalonians so much. They were so desirous of them that they opened up their whole lives to them. See, there's no false dichotomy for Paul Um, 
now I'm going to be friends with someone, and then now it's Jesus time, and I'm going to tell them about the gospel, and then now I can be friends with them, and now, you know, no, no, there's not two parts of his life. This is one thing. They're connected, intrinsically connected. They go hand in hand. Ministry wasn't a job for Paul where he clocked in and clocked out. It, it was his lifestyle. It was his calling. It was who he was as a Christian, and it is who you are as a Christian. There's not your Christian time where you do Christian-y things, and there's the, your life over here where you do life things. You can't separate those two things, or you ought not to. To be clear, though, I want to make sure you understand that Paul's life itself is not the gospel. You can't merely watch a person's life and understand the gospel. The gospel is the good news of how Jesus loves and saves sinners through, uh, or how God loves and saves sinners through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is a story that has to be told. Now, our, our lives can be a platform that gives us opportunity to share that with people, but our lives cannot actually speak that truth in and of itself. We have to open our mouths, the Bible says in Romans 10, and say it. We have to tell it. Because I'm not Jesus, and my life isn't saving anyone. Jesus' life saves people. Fourth, true gospel ministry means deep care for people. Paul really loved this church. In fact, he spends quite a bit of time in, in 1 Thessalonians telling them how th those who would be around them, who would, who would lie to them and say, Paul didn't care about you, man. At the first sign of persecution, he, he ran from Thessalonica. And Paul says, no, no, no. No, I have cared for you every minute of the way. I experienced persecution for you. And at every moment since I've been with you, I have been worried sick about you. In fact, Timothy, who is my, my greatest help, I sent him back to see you because I care about you that much that I'll live without Timothy just to know how you're doing, just to get an idea of how you're doing. And it's not like, it's not like today where it's like, oh, hey, Timothy drives, drops, drops, uh, jumps in the car, jumps in a plane, and tomorrow he's back with Paul and, and he's got a report. No, we're talking weeks, right? We're talking risking Timothy's life to travel, to walk back to Thessalonica because he cares about them that much. Chapter 3 is all about this. Verses 1 and 5 of chapter 3 share how Paul couldn't bear thinking that they might have fallen away as deep spiritual concern for them. In verse 7, he describes the, the deep comfort that he had from finding out that they're doing well in the faith despite persecution. Indeed, in chapter 2, verse 19, it kind of comes to a climax where Paul says that his very joy and crown of boasting at the coming of Jesus, what he looks forward to, what gives him joy in the midst of hard times is knowing that when Jesus comes back, that those believers, those Thessalonian believers will be standing right next to him in the presence of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? So a few questions here. Are these some of the top priorities when you examine how you are doing ministry as a Christian? Are these some of the top priorities? Second, are these some of the top priorities you look for when you're examining the leaders of, of a church that you're going to or that you're joining? I mean, these are questions that as I'm preparing this message, I've got to ask myself, am I preaching the gospel? Am I highly relational? Do I have deep care for the people of my church? Do I, am I self-sacrificing? These are the questions that I have to wrestle with. There are also points that make me very thankful to be a part of Proclaim because I've seen this in the lives of so many people. I've seen people preach the gospel and be self-sacrificing and do things when it doesn't actually help them. I've seen people be highly relational and I've been in most people here's homes at some point. I've been invited into your homes and let me tell you, this is what the fourth church that I've worked at in some capacity, and I've, that has not been the case. 
You'd care for people. I've seen that. I'm afraid too many people would leave a church where these things exist. Preaching the gospel, deep care for people, self-sacrificing leaders, highly relational. They would leave that church because there's a specific ministry centered around their specific wants at another church. And so they would forego the things that Scripture says is most important for the thing that they want. I think that's, that's a deeply regrettable decision. The long view says, God is the one who does the real work, and if there's true gospel ministry happening, then I might not get what I think I want in the moment, but I will get what I need eventually, and that is to be formed into the likeness of Christ. And, and being formed into the likeness of Christ may mean that you have to be in relationship with people who are messy and you don't like very much right now. In fact, most of the time in my life, that's what's actually formed me into the likeness of Christ. It's not spending time, more time with people that I just really enjoy and never rub me the wrong way. It's spending time with people that are hard to spend time with, where I have to actually be Christ in that moment. Most of the time, it's not been just going somewhere where I get what I want, but going somewhere where, where I need to be Christ to someone else, where I need to be the one that serves rather than the one who is served, the one that's doing ministry rather than receiving it. Our third top tip is this, pursue living life, uh, living like Christ together. Pursue living like Christ together. We find this throughout the first part of chapter four. He starts in verse three, he says, this is the will of God. How many of you guys have been wanting to know what God's will is for your life? I mean, how many times have you heard someone ask that? I just really want to know what God's will is for me. I just really want to know what God's will is for me here. All the time for me. And if I just knew what God's will is, well, Paul, Paul's going to tell you, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That God doesn't care as much about this or that or what job you have or what car you own or what house you buy or what decision you make on this or that. He cares about whether or not you're becoming like Christ because that matters forever. That's the long view. Sanctification is just a, a fancy Bible word for becoming more and more like Christ in your life and in your character. Your highest priority may be to to get the right job or to marry the right person or to succeed in ministry even. But if your hope is in Jesus Christ, then you don't have to be desperate to succeed in this or that because Jesus will succeed ultimately. In fact, your failure, listen, listen, your failure in some area of your life might be what humbles you and actually makes you more like Christ in the end. More often, it's been my failure that has produced Christ-likeness in my life than my success. And you might sit there and think, well, Cody, you should look a lot more like Christ then because you've <laughs> messed a lot of things up, and that's probably true. Mm. Listen, the things that you're wanting to accomplish, even if they're things for God, God God can accomplish those in a million different ways if he wants, like this. He doesn't need you to accomplish that. Maybe he has you in the midst of that because he wants to make you more like Christ, more than he wants you to succeed in that thing. Listen, God's not asking you to change the world. He wants you to be changed by him. So what are some ways that we can look more like Christ? Well, we see this in chapter four, verse one. It says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do it more and more. This is the basis for everything else, guys. Every day, every situation, you have to ask yourself, am I seeking to please someone else? Am I seeking to please myself? Or am I seeking to please God in this? 
There are things that we read in the Bible, and if we look at it, we honestly think, man, I know that's what the Bible is saying, but I just really don't like it. Have you guys ever been there? You're reading the Bible, or someone, you're hearing a sermon, maybe by me, uh, maybe or this, this sermon, I don't know, and, and you're like, man, I, I see that, I, I know that's true, but I just don't like it. I just don't want to do that. I've been there. Doctrines that I struggled with at first, I, don't, I, I see that that's what the Bible is saying, but I just don't like that truth. But listen, God isn't just true. God's also good. And here's what I've come to realize is when I submit to God's word, I start to realize uh, those truths that I said were, were true but I didn't like, I start to realize just how good they actually are. I just didn't realize it at the time because I'm not God. Doctrines I didn't like at first have now become sweet truths for me as I've really submitted to them and understand them and obeyed them, even though I didn't understand why I needed to obey them. I did it anyways, and then I realized, oh my goodness, this is brilliant. One of those is the second thing that Paul brings up here in chapter four. One of the, the second thing that I think is really important for pursuing living like Christ together we see it uh, in verse three, right after he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, the very first thing that he brings up, the very first, guys, the very first, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Live sexually holy. These Thessalonians, they lived in a promiscuous culture. And we think like, oh man, our world is pretty, you know, it's got a lot of things going on. It, it doesn't, like the Thessalonian, the Thessalonian church dealt with worse things than we deal with. It, it was more promiscuous, it was more moral than what we have. Adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, polyamory, all those different things were present and, and just very active. In fact, Paul is calling them to, to no longer live sexually in the way that the majority of the culture around them lived. And in fact, probably the way that most of them lived prior to Paul preaching the gospel to them. The majority of this church most likely came out of those situations. They had done those things. They were doing those things. And Paul is saying, abstain from sexual immorality. In verse four, it says that the distinguishing quality of Christian sexuality is this, control. That the thing that ought to distinguish them is control. Control isn't the exclusion of sexual activity, the idea is that sex is great when it stays within the guardrails that God has created for it, a relationship between a man and a woman. Now listen, I want to speak to Christian marriages for a second. You can't control something that isn't going anywhere. I want to be kind of blunt here. And I think that this is a topic that we have uh, not talked about in the church enough. We avoid, we avoid the topic in church and we avoid the actual thing in our marriages sometimes. And that's a problem because that's not control. Does that make sense? That's just getting rid of something. You don't control something that's dead. And I think we've downplayed sex. We've downplayed it because we didn't want people to be sexually immoral. Get, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. In hopes that people would not be uh, going the wrong ways with it. But what we've done actually is we've actually deceived people into thinking that, that it doesn't matter to God when actually when you read scripture, it's very important to God. In fact, he talks about his relationship with the church as a marriage relationship in Ephesians 5, Right? And he says, this is, this, is, this is what it's like, a man and a wife, and they become one flesh. But I'm not actually talking about marriage. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. And so the way in which we come together as married people, particularly exemplified through sex, which 
seals the covenant that we make to one another is incredibly important to God. It is a deeply spiritual thing. As Christians, sex can't be an area of our life that is closed off completely. Can't. On the other hand, there's a belief from our world that has been seeping into the church that says that your desires are part of who you are, and it's a violation against you if you don't follow through on whatever those desires are. If you feel a desire strong enough, that must be who you are, and so you need to follow that desire just blindly, and that's against Scripture as well. In fact, what we see in this passage is that there's no promise that Christians won't have wrong desires and temptations. In fact, verse 5 seems to imply that they will have wrong desires and temptations sexually. And it also says in verse 6 that not controlling your sexual desires always leads to you wronging other people. There is no sin, there's no sin, period, and there's certainly no sexual sin that is only impactful to you. It will always impact other people in your life. It will always impact your family. It will always impact your community. It will always impact other people. Listen, that is so true. And my guess is that every single one of you has a story of someone in your life who their sexual sin has negatively impacted you. Whether it be someone in your family or someone in, in your church or someone in, in your community or wherever, a friend, I don't know. But I'm willing to guess that 100% of you have had that. Friends, Sexual sin doesn't just impact you. It's not just like, oh, I know I goofed up and that, that hurt God's feelings. No, it, it, it impacts. Paul says, it, no, it has an enormous impact. It's a violation against other people, particularly against other believers. And some of you guys are tempted, I think, at this point, and I get it. You're tempted to turn your ears off in this section of the, 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 the sermon. You don't want to hear it because you know where you've been and you, and you know where you want to go. And listen, I have uh, desires and temptations, and I have messed up royally in different ways at different times. And so I get that. But verse 8 says this, and I think that we've got to listen to this. It says, therefore, whoever disregards this, particularly what Paul is saying about sexual immorality disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you understand in Corinthians, it talks about the fact that Christ has bought you with, with a price. You're his bride and he's bought you with the price of his blood and he's put his Holy Spirit in you. And when you sin sexually, it's not just uh, like other sins, it's actually a violation against the Holy Spirit living in you. You are... Above all other things, your identity is bride of Christ. Above all other things, your identity, Christian, is temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, don't defile that temple. Another thing he says is live loving and respectful lives. And Chapter 4, 9 and 11, it says, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to live, live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we've instructed you. The instruction here is to live the kind of life that portrays both love for one another and also garners respect from others. People, people have respect for the kind of person who takes care of their own business, right? The kind of person who works hard, who, who's honest, who doesn't stir up trouble unnecessarily. We have respect for those kinds of people. Those are like inherently respected things in the world. And Paul's saying, do those things. 
But, but I think we need to pay attention to why we need to do those things. The why isn't so that people will think really great of you, so that you can feel really respected. The why is this, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. It's not because you want people to think well of you, but it's because you want people to think well of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why. So live to please God, live sexually pure lives, live uh, loving and respectful lives. And then the last thing is encourage one another. And we see this twice in, in 4.18 and in 5.11, Paul says, therefore encourage one another. And in both sections, Paul is correcting wrong beliefs about Jesus' return uh, that were causing grief amongst the Christians. And he's correcting it and saying, this truth should encourage you. And so speak these truths to one another so that you are encouraging one another. The bottom line is, if our conversation about Jesus' return doesn't leave the church encouraged, then it was taught wrong or we're understanding it wrong. And in fact, I would say that while there are times where we have to speak God's truth to one another and it may not feel good in the moment, ultimately, it ought to encourage one another, right? Ultimately, even if it doesn't feel good in the moment, we ought to say, you know what? But praise God, Jesus wins. Praise God, Jesus died for me when I didn't deserve it, when I was a rebel, unwilling to submit. And he made me to know who he is. He did that for me. And he rose from the dead, and if he rose from the dead, I will too. And so the reason we can have this hope and be encouraged is described in the final chapter. Chapter five, verse three, it says this, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Listen, we can feel that right now, right? Hey, it's all good. We're figuring out, we're figuring out more and more of these diseases and health is great and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, there's this thing that comes through and people go, I don't even know what to do with this. We've never seen this before right? And we don't, know, we don't know what to do. And our, we're not so secure as we thought we were. And see, this is, this is a description of those who are outside of Christ. People who say there's peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them. At the time Paul's writing this, there's a thing called Pax Romana, is the peace of Rome. And basically Rome had gone around and murdered all of their enemies so that no one was rebelling against them. And, and it did bring a, a kind of peace to the world for a season. And people were finding their security in this man-made, uh, uh, murderous, treacherous uh, peace that they had. And Paul says, no, that's not where our security is. Our security is in the peace of Christ instead. For us who are in Christ, verse 23, it says this, now may the God of peace, the God of peace, himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. My security is not in anything in this world. My security is in the faithfulness of God and he will return and he will bring me to be with him and that is where my security is and he is faithful to do it, friends. And whatever happens in this moment, whether I live or die, Nothing changes that. And so we're in this weird place as Christians where we don't have to be concerned. We don't have to have concern about us uh, getting a, a virus and killing us. We don't have to have that rule our lives, cause us to be fearful about everything, we don't have to do that because we know that in the end we will live with Christ and yet we're called to live lives that are loving and respectable and to care about other people's lives. So this is weird tension that we live in in this moment, right? I don't have to be afraid and yet I know that others might be and so how can I be loving and respectable to them? See, our peace doesn't come through murder and subjugation of everyone else. In fact, 
If we read chapter 5, you see Paul describing that our earthly circumstances, uh, what happens in the world, is going to be, it's going to have conflicts, it's going to have war, it's going to have problems, even, even things that happen in the church are going to have problems. But our, so rather, our peace and security comes through our Savior's willingness to be murdered on our behalf. Get this. Our peace and security doesn't come from, from murdering and subjugating other people as it did for Rome. Our peace and security comes from a savior who was willing to be murdered and to submit himself for us. And he gives us peace with God and peace within ourselves even when the world around us is at war. It's a wonderful truth about the gospel. And because he does that and guarantees it for us, we need not be anxious or, or desperate We don't need to sin in order to carve out a little place for ourselves in this world, but rather we can do what verses 12 through 18 of chapter five say. We can respect our leaders. We can be at peace with each other. We can support those who haven't, haven't got it yet and, and need encouragement and support. We can repay. We, we don't have to repay evil with evil. We can rejoice. We can pray and we can give thanks always. That's how the destination shapes the journey. Let me pray. God, thank you for this letter to the Thessalonians. And man, what a bunch of, whew, a lot in one sermon to try to cover, a lot of ground. And I pray that, that your word would continue to minister to us. I thank you most of all that you've done this thing for us. I pray that we would walk away encouraged by the truth of the work that you've done on our behalf. I pray that we'd walk away challenged. Lord, I thank you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. We come to a time in our service where we take communion. It's getting warm out here. I'm getting like sweaty up here. I don't usually sweat so much when I'm preaching. Uh, we come to a time in our service where we take communion, as, as Coleman said. So if you, if you forgot to grab a, a communion cup and you're taking communion with us, they're in, they're in the back. Um, but guys, this sermon is... Um, this letter of the First Thessalonians is one of my one of my favorites. It's it's encouraging and yet it's really incredibly challenging to me personally. And I hope I hope that as as you've we've kind of gone over it, that it's been both encouraging and challenging to you as well. And I want to take some time. You know, Paul says in one of his other letters, he says, "Hey, when you, when you're coming to the to the table the, to take communion to." this thing we call the Lord's Supper, that you ought to take time to examine your own lives. So I want to take a minute for you guys to just stop and examine your life in light of Christ and what he's done. And one of the things it says is that, that when we take communion, we actually pro proclaim Christ's sacrifice until he returns. And so there's an element of this thing that we do called communion that is, that is looking forward to, to the eventual truth that it guarantees. That because Christ rose from the dead, we know that he will return. So would you, would you just take a minute, and if there's sin in your life, if there's something from this message or something that the Holy Spirit's just laid on your life that you go, man, I need to confess that, would you take a second and just confess those things to him? <laughs>